When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. I'm here with Emily Wilkins. We've got Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis with us today. And we're going to get a call from Ali Zaidi, Deputy National Climate Advisor at the White House. We're going to have to talk today about the Israel-Palestine news on a ceasefire uh, that came out this afternoon. Dr. Fauci, Anthony Fauci, the premier coronavirus advisor, talking today with David Weston at Bloomberg on the status of masks and vaccines in the U.S. But it's not hard to tell you what the headline is today, the big news this afternoon, an agreement on a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. This was announced this afternoon by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. This begins Friday. And in fact, at 545, within in the hour, President Biden is supposed to speak about the status of what is happening in the Middle East. Now, there were hints of a potential ceasefire coming together throughout the day. And in fact, we heard earlier before the ceasefire was announced from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. We've got sound on that. Let's hear from her. We believe the Israelis have achieved significant military objectives uh, that they laid out to achieve uh, in relation to protecting their people and to responding to the uh, thousands of rocket attacks from Hamas. Um, And so that's why, in part, that we feel uh, they are in a position to start winding their operation down. Okay, so most important question here, I think, Rick, is does this, based on what we've seen, and this is breaking news this afternoon, does this seem like it'll stick? Is this a a shaky detente or does this seem solid? What do you think, Rick? Well, I think Israel, uh, uh, Netanyahu's government, has probably done exactly what you described earlier. They feel that they have accomplished the goal of degrading Hamas's capacity to lob thousands of rockets into Israel. Uh, If that changes and Hamas breaks that peace by lobbying these rockets, then Netanyahu, who has a perilous political situation uh, at home, uh, will likely to strike back. This 11-day war uh, was probably something that uh, bolstered Netanyahu at home by by looking like he was protecting his citizens 
and Hamas is, is, is really the keeper of that peace. If they start throwing missiles across the border again, I think it breaks down immediately. You know, President Biden really throughout this entire process, he was in frequent communication with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, Biden expressed support for a ceasefire earlier in the week, although the White House clarified that he did not actually call for a ceasefire outright, despite members of his own party calling for it and urging President Biden to call for it. Rick, how much credit should the president be given for the result that we're seeing today? Well, I definitely think he uh, was able to publicly create pressure, regardless of the adjectives used, uh, on the Israelis to uh, uh, try to diminish uh, the, the, the length of this attack, right? I mean, not the ferocity of it, but the length of it. And he also played an important role, I think, the president did in dealing with President el-Sisi from Egypt, who has been brokering the peace talks, because no matter what you do with uh, Netanyahu, you still have to have a counterparty uh, the Hamas leadership, the Palestinian leadership, to be willing to uh, ratchet down on their side of the violence. And it sounds like Egypt played a constructive role in trying to bring that part of it into the table. Okay, so again, the uh, the big news coming up at about 5.45, maybe a little later, presidents are often late, uh, but at 5.45, we're supposed to hear from President Biden speaking about this. Rick, what should we hear from Biden? What would you anticipate the message would be, and how does he wrap this up and, and try to assure people that this is uh, a, a ceasefire that can hold? Well, I think part of his strategy will be to ensure that there's confidence on the part of both uh, the Israeli leadership and Hamas that they're keeping it so high a profile in the public view uh, by the president himself going on national uh, television to to talk about this, that um, it keeps everybody's feet to the fire. Uh, I think that kind of public pressure that a president of the United States uniquely can give to a situation like that can actually keep the, the embers cool for a while. Uh, as they sort out uh, how they coexist in the future, which I think is still a very big question because what we haven't spoken about is the Arab-Jewish uh, violence that's occurring inside of Israel uh, at the same time the Hamas rockets were flying. Well, obviously, you know, President Biden has such a, a prominent role when it comes to the U.S.'s foreign policy, but Congress has also really gotten involved in this story as well. You know, uh, earlier this month, the Biden administration approved the sale of a $735 million precision-guided weapons to Israel. And now we're seeing a number of progressive lawmakers, including Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, are moving to block that sale. Jack, do you see them being successful in this initiative? And what does this sort of say overall about the dynamics within the Democratic Party when it comes to this issue? Well, I'm a little skeptical about this. I can't exactly make a prediction, but I'm skeptical about the push for a block on that arms sale, especially because of the news today that there was a ceasefire. And I think there was a huge push from a lot of Democrats, not even just the Democrats on way on the left there, the majority of Senate Democrats did say we need to call for a ceasefire a few days back. Uh, so this was a, an issue where the president was facing significant political pressure from his own party to do something. But with a ceasefire in hand now, uh, it, you know, he never seemed like he was moving ahead with trying to block that arms uh, sale to Israel. Uh, and I, I'm not sure anything's really pushing him now that they've actually got some good news. But again, we'll have to see how long this lasts. 
Now, guys, I, I hate to just change the subject, but this is such a, a big news afternoon. Um, I've, I've got to go to Anthony Fauci, the coronavirus, really he's the coronavirus guy, he's the director of NIAID, but uh, you know him as the guy who, who talks about the coronaviruses and has for the last year. He did an interview earlier today with our colleague at Bloomberg TV, uh, David Weston, and we've got some sound from that on masks and viruses and really rounding up where the U.S. stands on the coronavirus. Let's play that clip from the interview that uh, David Weston did with Anthony Fauci. We don't want to declare victory prematurely, but if we can get the 70% of adults vaccinated with at least one dose by the 4th of July, the way the president has set the goal, I think the chances of there being a surge or a rebound is extremely low. That's the reason why we want to continue to get people vaccinated Okay, so extremely low is a, a good phrase to hear, but that's in the context of a surge. My big question that I've, I've tried to figure out and that I'm getting a, a sense of, Rick, I want to hear what you think about this, is are we assuming that there will be variants and that there will be a low level of the coronavirus out there at least for a little while and our success story is just trying to avoid a massive surge? Or how do you put into context going forward the way Anthony Fauci framed that, Rick? Yeah, well, uh, Dr. Fauci has been saying for some time that these variants are going to uh, occupy space in this pandemic as long as there are people who are uh, not vaccinated. And so regardless of whether it's 70 percent or 80 percent, you know, we might be splitting hairs. But the reality is he's also said at the same time, one way to manage these variants is likely to require everybody who had gotten a shot in the last year uh, to have an, a booster shot that could be designed to accommodate uh, our immune system to protect us from these variants also. Uh, so, I mean, we get shots every year for flu. It's a, it's a variant of the flu every year. There's never the same flu that comes through. And I think this is just part of the toolkit that they have to try and manage um, the, it, it, and ensure that they don't have big outbreaks in any one community. Uh, it, it, I think it's just a, another way for the medical system to protect ourselves from future outbreaks. You know, Rick, I mean, I am one of those Americans who is fully vaccinated now. I have definitely been able to take off my mask in certain situations where I previously had to left it on. I am giddy about being able to go back to the gym and eat indoors in restaurants. I'm wondering, since we've now sort of hit this point where more people are, are taking off their masks, is there ever, even if we do see a new surge, is it going to be hard to sort of get people to go back to the way that it was before with the lockdowns and the mask wearing and, and the restrictions? I mean, now that we've sort of opened the box on, on freedom again, is it going to be a little more difficult to have to revert if we do start seeing a surge? You know, it's interesting, Emily, I've been traveling quite a bit in the last two weeks, having been fully vaccinated myself. <laughs> I've created some, uh, some, some liberty of my own. And it is actually still amazing to me to see how different each community I've landed in uh, has addressed the mask issue. Uh, I'm actually in California today, and, and there's still a mask mandate in effect for another uh, couple of three weeks, and people are adhering to that mandate. But in Texas, where I was earlier this week, 
Um, there's nobody wearing a mask, and and yet it's the same population within the same you know country. And so I do think there are lessons learned, right? I mean, as we as we conquer the pandemic and manage it more as a public health issue, uh, and and not as is is something that's critical and 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 killing lots of people. Uh, I think that people will find an adjustment. I I know for sure that I will wear a mask every year during flu season on occasion when I'm traveling because I just have learned that uh, it's it's a healthier way to uh, occupy space if you're on public transportation or something like that. But I'm with you. I'm I'm looking forward to the day I can walk into any restaurant I want and not be wearing a mask. Yeah, Rick, I think we're all more careful about flu season coming up. Thank goodness we didn't have a bad flu season. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Uh, last year. I'm Emily Wilkins, here along with my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick and Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. We're breaking down the news of the day. One of the big things that we saw this week come out of Congress, five months after a mob stormed the Capitol, vandalizing the building and temporarily halting the certification of electoral votes. The House is currently working to pass several pieces of legislation dealing with the incident. We'll start with last night when the House of Representatives approved legislation that would establish a congressional commission to investigate the breach of the Capitol building. Uh, we saw 35 House Republicans break ranks and join with Democrats to support it, even though GOP leadership opposes the bill. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki spoke today about the importance of the commission. Here's the sound on that. This is a question of how we secure our democracy and the rule of law. So it's incredibly disappointing to see how many, how many representatives have opted to turn this into a political issue instead of doing what's right for our country and our Constitution. And they still have the opportunity to do the right thing. You know, Rick, it seems pretty straightforward on the surface. Republicans and Democrats widely agree that the Capitol riots were an attack and something that they don't want to see happen again. What does it tell you that so many Republicans voted against the formation of this commission? You know, I think it's a, not an insignificant thing. I mean, Emma, you point out a real breach, I think, in, in, in the Republican caucus in the House. We, we saw a massive movement in the last week by jettisoning uh, Congresswoman uh, Liz Cheney from leadership, replacing her with a Trump loyalist. And even today, uh, I think it put Minority Leader uh, McCarthy, the Republican in charge of the House caucus, in a very difficult position. I have to explain to reporters that, you know, he's saying, oh, I thought even more people would vote for this thing. And, 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 and I, I, I would, that strains credibility, I think, for a House leader to say that, you know, a third of his caucus walks on him and, and somehow he, he expected more. So I think it does pretend to be um, a shot in the arm to Democrats who want to see this thing pass the Senate. It's a much closer vote there because of the, uh, uh, the even number of Republicans and Democrats in that chamber. And so uh, this is probably as good a springboard as it can have in order to try and bypass Republican leadership in the Senate's opposition to this and see if they can garner similar kinds of support among the rank and file.
No, you make a great point, Rick. I mean, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has already come out against this bill. So we're all watching closely to see if there's any way to get the 10 Republican votes needed to actually pass and implement this commission. In addition to the commission today, the House took up another piece of January 6th related legislation, a $1.9 billion bill to strengthen capital security. Jack, you and I were actually hanging out in the House today as this bill was being passed. What was your takeaway from the vote and the wider discussion on this legislation. Yeah, I've been following the work on a bill to try to secure the Capitol, and I didn't even realize how close it was going to be. They ended up passing it 213 to 212. That was really surprising. They did not get Republican support, and there were, and this is the, the big picture issue that I see. There were six Democrats who either voted no or voted present as a protest, and most of them put out statements saying the issue was they don't want to give a big funding increase to law enforcement agencies. So we are seeing, uh, rather than a, a big bipartisan unity front to try to secure the Capitol, we're seeing more or less the defund the police political issue break off Democrats uh, and, and really highlight how uh, thin the Democratic majority is in the House. And I mean, Rick, I'm curious what your take on this is. If they can't uh, really even pass, I mean, they passed it in the House, but it's looking bad in the Senate, a bill just to further secure the Capitol and add fencing and that kind of thing, uh, because we've got Democrats breaking off saying we don't want to give more money to law enforcement. What, uh, what does that say about especially the Democratic majority, which is so razor thin in the House? Well, uh, Jack, I think you're spot on when you talk about how close this uh, vote was. I don't think anybody saw this one coming. Uh, so far, we've we've become convinced that Nancy Pelosi and 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 Joe Biden have been able to keep uh, the left wing of their party in check. Uh, they've gotten pretty much Democratic support uh, across the board for these kinds of test votes, where they knew they weren't going to get any Republican votes, but. The fact that Congress, you know, people Omar Bush and Presley like walked on them with a very sharp rebuke saying, you know, uh, basically that this was a defund the police vote. Um, I, it's a real embarrassment for them because they've been trying to bury the defund movement uh, because it really pressures their center and uh, in a much more significant way uh, that could affect them in the general or in the midterm elections. And so. I, I think there's going to be a lot of soul searching in that Democratic caucus on, you know, what do you do about these members who walk? Because it's giving enormous ammunition to Republicans who use the defund police very effectively in the general election. I mean, Rick, talk a little bit about sort of the upcoming mid midterms. I mean, is this something where we are going to see this issue continue to play a role as the midterms come closer and closer? For sure. We saw... Uh, this being rolled out as part of the Republican attack uh, in uh, in 2020, for sure it's going to be a uh, a part of the dialogue. Certainly in certain states uh, where uh, there's a lot of pushback against the efforts to defund the police and 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 that kind of thing. So uh, I think it's part of the arsenal. I, I I think there'll be much more than this. It's not I think a dividing issue. You know where you're going to win a lot of uh, votes, but this is part of the broader message that the Joe Biden administration has been captive of the liberal left. And if they had lost this vote by only a few other Democrats walking on them, it would have been a major embarrassment to the Democratic leadership in Congress.
Uh, you know, guys, I believe we have Ali Zaidi uh, joining us now, Deputy National Climate Advisor for the White House, who's able to talk with us a bit uh, about the White House's climate agenda. Ali, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, good to be on with you all. Now, I, I understand uh, you're able to talk at this point about the executive order that's coming out. Is that right? On uh, a, a number of sort of a government-wide uh, measures that get into uh, acknowledging and accounting for the price uh, that is essentially what is priced into climate change. Can you, can you give us a quick rundown of what is coming out today? Yeah, absolutely. And good to be on with you. Um, today, President Biden issued an executive order that really marks a pivotal, pivotal step forward for the United States, um, an effort to better analyze and mitigate the serious financial and economic risks posed by climate change. Um, look, the, 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 the baseline is this. Our, our mo modern financial system was built on the assumption that the world uh, has a stable climate. And that's an assumption that's carried forward in existing financial models. It underpins the way we grow and invest in capital for the long term. But increasingly, it's clear that that assumption no longer holds. Uh, we see increased wildfire risks threaten the viability of insurance markets, rising temperatures drag on outdoor labor productivity, and poor investment risk management that's putting the hard-earned life savings of American families and workers in jeopardy. And... You know, one of the things the president recognizes is that the current financial metrics and tools uh, fall short. And that's why the president issued an executive order that leverages a whole of government approach to protect uh, retirement savings, ensure the stability of the federal government and the financial system and mobilize capital towards achieving a net zero emission economy by 2050. So, Ali, I'm looking at some of the details here, and a couple things that pop out to me are uh, a push to incorporate climate-related risk disclosures into federal lending and underwriting and procurement, uh, and also uh, a line encouraging the Labor Secretary to amend Trump administration rules that bar investment firms from considering those kinds of risks in investments uh, on workers' pension plans. It, it, maybe I'm being a little simplistic here, but can you explain, is this ultimately going to try to lead to a push to get major pension plans and maybe universities to divest from fossil fuels? What this is about is increasing the information people have when they make critical financial decisions, whether it's consumers and households or businesses and large investment houses. And what we're realizing is that um, our financial regulatory uh, system, uh, our system of governance has really um, uh, kept us from having that robustness of data available for people, for firms. And we need to get that data out there. We need to help people understand how you know, increased hurricane risk might impact a uh, portfolio that holds real property assets. We need to help people understand um, how uh, increased wildfire risk might result in supply chain risks, and then how that translates into their lives, uh, into the decisions that they need to make. Um, that's the focus here, uh, is to recognize the changing reality um, that that is uh, being created by the climate crisis um, and help people trace that back into 
the financial decisions they need to make, give them the data and the tools uh, that they need to make better and more sound decisions. Now, Ali, uh, you obviously this is part of the drive behind this executive order is to get more data. But what do we know at this time about how serious these potential climate risks could be? Look, we all we know, for example, that the federal government is already accruing very significant uh, impacts in terms of uh, hits to the Treasury. Uh, year over year, we're seeing the costs of disasters increase. Um, just last year, the United States experienced 22 disasters, costing at least a billion dollars in damages. So we know that that's taken place. Um, then we look on the private side and we see um, the real impacts on um, utility companies uh, who are now facing increased fires and floods and storms. And we need to get the data out there to help people understand which firms uh, are being impacted how. Uh, and ultimately, you know, what that's going to do is help people uh, make the investments that are necessary in things like resilience and adaptation, um, help uh, people see the opportunity uh, that, that investments in clean energy and the clean energy future represent. So this is about getting that information out there, uh, being smarter about the decisions that we make, um, and ultimately about uh, saving money. So, Ali, I see some mentions uh, not only about transparency measures uh, and that kind of thing, but on how this affects the government's budget and trying to uh, avoid too much risk exposure to government, uh, I believe, assets. And maybe you can tell us some more details about how that works. But in particular, uh, OMB is supposed to be sending along a full budget request to Congress next week. How much is this executive order going to be incorporated into what we see next week in the full budget proposal? What the executive order directs uh, OMB to do is to integrate um, over the course of the next year, it undertake the analysis to look at how this climate risk flows to different aspects of federal investment and asset management uh, and report out on that as part of the next budget request. I think what you'll see in this budget request uh, is a commitment to advancing the administration's climate objectives, whether they be uh, in terms of spurring the new um, economic sectors that we need to tackle this crisis and the jobs uh, that come with growing those sectors, uh, or it's investing in resilience and adaptation. Um, so you'll see that in this budget, but um, one of the things this executive order does is directs the agency um, over the next year to really integrate uh, this more fundamentally uh, into the way it uh, accounts for risk, thinks about opportunity, and stewards uh, the public's money. Now, Ali, uh, I know that obviously it sounds like there's going to be a wide range of industries and businesses that are going to be impacted by climate change going forward. But I'm wondering when this data does get produced, do you think there are going to be any industries that are going to be particularly impacted by this? And what might those impacts result in? You know, one of the things uh, that's really remarkable uh, there's an outside group that did analysis of about 80 different industries, took, took, the, um, took the economy, split it up into roughly 80 industries, and looked at which 
uh, industries would be impacted. Uh, and it was, uh, I believe, 75 out of the 80. Um, it's really hard to, um, you know, be a participant in the real economy and not uh, see the, the impacts of climate flow um, to your operations and to your assets. Um, you know, you think about things like the long supply chains that support uh, so many parts of the economy. Uh, those supply chains are often vulnerable to physical uh, disruption, to risks from uh, storms and hurricanes. And then you think about um, the, the transition risks associated with a changing climate um, as the world shifts to an increasingly low carbon economy. How do we plan for that? How do we make sure uh, that that is upside and opportunity for our uh, households and for our firms? So, Ali, this makes me wonder about this uh, growing, not a short-term trend, long-term, very, very growing trend of passive investing. When we talk about transparency measures and the financial risk to certain investments, uh, I'm curious if one of the goals here is for people who put their savings into an ETF and don't probably don't know what they're investing in necessarily. Do you want them to know if they are investing in oil companies and that kind of thing and then to maybe push back a little bit? How, how does how does this the trend of passive investing and people putting their money into uh, ETFs and things where they're not really paying attention to the detail uh, tie into this kind of executive executive order, if at all? I think one of the, what one of the things that the the interagency process will be looking at is how do you provide uh, folks with actionable information, um, clarity, and transparency. That means um, you know uh, for different financial products, um, what do what do the labels say, uh, and are they um, sufficiently descriptive of what sits inside the jar? Uh, and I think you know there are there are a broad set of questions that the interagency uh, will be tackling, and um, and I know that that Secretary Yellen, in particular, uh, as chair of the FSOC um, and the independent agencies, uh, has already been digging into to many of these questions, um, and they will continue to do that. Ali, we appreciate your time today. Before you go, real quick, uh, take us up to the 30,000-foot level here. How does this executive order play into President Biden's wider goals on climate change? Yeah, look, the, the big thing that the president, um, I think, has done is to, one, focus on a sector-by-sector basis. Um, for him, climate action isn't just about the electricity sector uh, or the fuels sector. It's about every six, single sector of the economy. Um, and, and the second thing he's done is to focus in on the opportunity. Um, you know, uh, a friend of mine likes to say in climate change, there are three options, uh, mitigation, adaptation, and suffering. Um, our goal is to focus on the opportunity that actually taking action represents. And so, um, you know, here again, we are focusing on yet another sector of the economy that has a critical uh, role to play and where there's tremendous opportunity if we lean in and take action. Ali, thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking the time to, to join us and explain this executive order that just 
just came out today. That was Ali Zaidi, National Deputy uh, Deputy National Climate Advisor at the White House. Now, uh, Rick, I'm curious what you make of this uh, on the financial aspect of risk assessment, climate change. Is this uh, appropriate because it's something that's been overlooked? Is this mission creep and the, the climate regulation issue is getting into just about every government agency? What's your main takeaway, Rick? Yeah, I don't think it's mission creep. And I do think it's a uh, an issue that has uh, been waiting for some sunshine. And I think this executive order will get a debate going that has been raging under the currents in the climate community. And, and, and a good example is uh, this is a case where the federal government is setting a standard. They're saying, you know, the, the way the federal government is going to treat these things on managing risks with their assets, and of course, they have enormous assets, uh, the military with their bases all around the world, some of them, you know, on uh, uh, can be impacted significantly by rising oceans and things like that. Navy bases are all looking at how they adjust their risk to climate uh, and the impacts of climate. But th- imagine the insurance industry has been grappling with this. What? How do we apply risk management to the physical risk, the liability risk, the transition risks that are associated with our portfolios, not just those things that we've underwritten and insured uh, without real regard for climate, but also those things we're invested in, like what you were talking about, that may have uh, climate risk embedded in it. And so this gives everybody a chance to say, okay, now I understand what the federal government is doing. We, we don't have a requirement to do this now, but we better get smart and start looking at how we, how we manage our portfolios. Insurance industry has been slow uh, to, to do this because I think there is a fear that it could impact the value of their portfolios. And you can only imagine if you start uh, looking at underwriting assumptions around climate, uh, how hard it's gonna be to get uh, coverage in some places of the world that are super sensitive to the kinds of climate risks that we have. So I think this is a great step. It's gonna be overlooked by a lot of people, but I think it's the kind of thing where industry is really gonna have to now grapple with this because the federal government is setting a standard. Yeah, this is one of those issues where it's tough to explain to the public, but it's important because it's big for industry, big for the economy, really significant one. Uh, Thanks again to Ali Zaidi for joining us just there from the White House. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Emily Wilkins here with my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick and joined once again by the great Bloomberg politics contributor Rick Davis. We are potentially waiting for a remark soon from President Biden on the breaking news today of a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas that was announced this afternoon after 11 days of fighting. But first, we want to go to another thing that the Biden administration did today, always busy over there at the White House. Uh, Today, the Biden administration released a report claiming that if the IRS was given more funding, it would bolster its staff and its ability to crack down on hidden funds by the wealthy and raise $700 billion in the next decade. Now, this isn't the first time we've heard this number from the Biden administration, and there's been some skepticism over those numbers. Pennsylvania University's Wharton School examined the president's plan and said, you know what, we think it's only going to raise about $480 billion. But the Biden administration pushed back against that today 
update with this report laying out really how they would get at the billions they say are not getting properly taxed. Part of that a Treasury plan includes requiring banks and financial institutions to report account flows information that the IRS does not currently have. And even though there has been some bipartisan support for boosting the IRS's capability, we saw Republican Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa tweeted this week that while he's all for catching checks, tax cheats and closing the tax gap, uh, Biden's plan to expand bank reporting is ripe for overreach and imposes more burdens on small businesses and family farms. And he suggested it could also influence who gets an audit and why. Rick Davis, uh, you know, you've you've done so much with politics over the years. Are these valid concerns or is this just sort of more politicking over President Biden's tax plan? Yeah, I think I think it's a combination. Obviously, you can't talk about the tax plan in a vacuum. It's what's funding the infrastructure plan. So if it doesn't have enough revenue associated with it to fund the, the, the infrastructure plan, then the infrastructure plan, you know, is on shaky ground as if it's not on shaky ground already. So uh, so this is an instrumental uh, debate. This this has great ramifications to future big legislative uh, uh, outcomes. And so uh, I would say, too, it's caught in a, a classic struggle between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, Republicans don't want to keep adding to the capacity of government. Um, I think everybody does agree that they want to catch tax sheets, cheats, but they uh, they don't want to build a significant presence of government, you know, into the future. And so Democrats think government can solve a lot of problems. Republicans think government uh, creates a lot of problems. And so that's part of the ideological debate underneath the legislative debate. So, Rick, I'm, I'm always curious about the gimmicky things that lawmakers do to say they paid for a major piece of legislation or to try to downplay the cost of the legislation. I, I was very curious about how this would work out, especially because they score these bills and they go to the Congressional Budget Office, which gives them a magic number, and they tell them, you know, this adds this to the deficit or, or it doesn't. It can often be an arbitrary issue. Uh, yesterday, the House Budget Chairman, John Yarmuth, was talking to some of us reporters saying the the IRS enforcement thing might not really work out as a legitimate official pay for. But, you know, I, I, I think of the tax push in 2017 from Republicans um, uh, where they claimed it would pay for itself. The CBO didn't agree, but they did it anyway. Are we going to should we be on the lookout for gimmicky things that say uh, that this infrastructure bill is paid for when it might not really be? Or, or do you think we're just going to deficit finance this if it happens and say, well, you know, it'll it'll pay for itself in economic growth later? How do you you see them justifying the cost and addressing the idea of a pay-for that often, it, to me, seems pretty gimmicky. Yeah, Jack, you, you point out a, uh, a either a huge advantage to politicians uh, of every party or a huge disadvantage, and that is reality never really strikes them in the face. I mean, the point you make about, you know, Republicans saying the 17 tax cuts were going to pay for themselves and the Democrats saying the IRS is going to fund this infrastructure bill. It's all bull, right? I mean, they don't know. And, and, and historically, you're right, we've used organizations, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, to score these things to determine how the Congress people uh, will mark them up you know, in their committees. Uh, Donald Trump did his best to try and undermine the integrity of the CBO because he didn't like the numbers they were giving him. Uh, I would say the Biden administration, in a 
opposite reaction to the, uh, the Trump administration is trying to bolster the integrity of these institutions. So if they score this poorly, uh, it's not likely that the Biden administration is going to fight them on it. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a pickle for for people trying to figure out what how much money any of this is going to give them. Ultimately, if you want to spend eight, nine hundred million dollars on an infrastructure bill, there's a lot of creative uh, work that can be done at the at the appropriations level to find a way to pay for that. As you point out, there's a lot of tools, whether it's in revenue raising or or in debt financing. You know, uh, Rick, I, I so appreciate you just sort of injecting that little bit of reality. Sometimes with uh, politics and rhetoric, it's easy to sort of lose fight of what's real and what, as you said, is a little bull. Uh, that said, I do sort of want to turn to the fact that these tax cuts aren't, you know, as you mentioned, being done in a vacuum. They are a part of that larger push push to get a transportation and infrastructure legislation done. And you know, right now that pay for, they're a really key sticking point in negotiations between President Biden and Republicans. You know, Republicans say we need user fees. President Biden says no way. President Biden says we need to raise the corporate tax rate. Republicans say no way. It does seem like they do have some agreement here on this bolstering of the IRS. I mean, could this, Jack, you've, you've been following this issue as closely as I have. Could this sort of be a path forward into finding some sort of agreement to get infrastructure done? Yeah, and I think one of the outstanding questions is how badly does President Biden really want to offset the cost entirely? As I mentioned, when we see a big piece of legislation, we get into the conversation about uh, gimmicks that make the cost seem maybe less than it otherwise would be. There's um, there there's sort of a push and pull, as Rick mentioned on the CBO, and Democrats have said again and again they really don't want to try to uh, pressure the CBO. They they were critical of Republicans trying to pressure the CBO on the tax cuts. Although I I will note that uh, Chairman Yarmuth, the budget chairman in the House, mentioned he is going to have a conversation with the CBO director uh, at some point. In in the near future about whether these kinds of IRS measures can be officially used for a pay for. But you know, ultimately they can deficit finance this and not get a good score on an official, uh, you know, the CBO can say it, it costs a certain amount of money and then the supporters can say, well, we disagree and we're gonna vote for it anyway. Uh, and in fact, it, it, when they do this in a partisan way through the budget process, they often carve out a certain amount of money that they'll add to the deficit, uh, even if they claim it won't add to the deficit. So I'm curious, how Biden will go forward and is he going to be a really staunch believer in having to pay for this or does he uh, give the nod to some more gimmicky kind of stuff uh, and that's that's something that we've been uh, that we've been watching for on the hill now if I can sneak in another issue that I thought was really interesting that you sent a note around uh, about is as we are watching these lawmakers go to vote, there's a little controversy over the fact that they're still supposed to be wearing masks on the House floor. And I've got to ask you, Emily, what you noticed earlier about, I, I understand there are some members who are refusing and they're taking the $500 fine. What's what's going on? I'm, I'm very confused. You've been on the Hill even more than I have lately about uh, the mask rule in the House and how this is turning into the, the latest controversy. Sure. So Jack, as you and I well know, the CDC has come out, eased mask wearing guidelines 
Americans. However, the House physician, attending physician, basically put out a memo saying, hey, look, it's great. You can now demask in certain places around the Capitol. But because we're having a bunch of people gather in a room, as you do for the House chamber, we want people to leave their masks on there. And we also want them to leave them on in committees. This did not sit very well uh, with a couple Republicans, but we did hear Speaker Pelosi address this today at her weekly briefing. Here's the sound on that. We have a responsibility to make sure of that the House of the Representatives chamber is not a petri dish for the, uh, because of the selfishness of some not to be vaccinated. I mean, even so, Jack, as you point out, I think we saw 13 members this week sort of get their second violation. That's a $500 fine. First one is just a warning. And then we haven't seen any member yet get that second uh, level of fine. That is $2,500. And for some of these lawmakers, that is a a hefty cut chunk out of their paycheck. But also it's just it's more partisan politics that we're seeing on the floor. It's just one more issue for Democrats and Republicans to sort of knock heads over around Congress. Did I see Marcy Kaptur was one of them too? Strangely enough, as as partisan as this has gotten, there's one Democrat who got in trouble. I know Marcy Kaptur, Democrat from Ohio in the House, has a history of seeming like somebody who doesn't entirely take uh, directions from Pelosi, but that one stood out to me. Although I think you're still right to mention this is largely turned into this partisan issue over whether you wear a mask in the House. Yeah, that's been the other thing. I mean, you've seen Democrats set up these magnetometers and give fines. You've seen them set these masks and grab fines, but you've seen also Democrats get fined. And we don't know the backstory on Capture at this point, but she'll have a chance to dispute that fine in the House Ethics Committee, and we'll just see where this whole mask wearing thing goes. Well, that is it for today's show. I was joined today by Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.